0: This episode is sponsored by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 5.11 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 5.11tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's shield 15 at 5.11tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 5.11 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 417 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Paul DeGelder. Now, Paul is a veteran of the Australian Army, the Australian Navy, as a bomb disposal diver, and it was during that time in a training incident he was attacked by a shark, ultimately losing an arm and a leg. Being the epitome of resilience, he overcame that injury physically and mentally and returned to duty before transitioning out and becoming one of the faces of Shark Week. So this is an incredibly powerful story. There are some real takeaways, including his near-death experience and how he found peace after that. Before we get to that conversation, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Paul de Gelder. Enjoy. Well, Paul, I want to start by saying thank you so much. I know you've had a crazy day today, so I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. No dramas, mate. Thanks for inviting me. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I
1: am at home in Marina del Rey, Los Angeles. Beautiful. That's a beautiful part of LA, at least. Yeah, it's not too bad. My, my balcony doors look over a little um, marina beach, and it's a pretty nice spot. There was, uh, there's no shops around here, so there was no rioting. Oh, really? (laughs) They weren't tearing up the
0: the boats in the area? (laughs) All right. Well, then, obviously, from your accent, you are not a native Californian. So, let's start at the very beginning. Tell me where you were born and then also your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings.
1: Um, I was born in a place called Mornington Peninsula. It's about an hour and a half south of Melbourne, uh, a little seaside town known for horse racing and wine. Uh, I'm the oldest of four kids. Um, there was me, my younger brother, two younger brothers, then my baby sister. And um, dad was a cop, and mum was the traditional housewife. Um, we stayed there until I was about 10, and then dad got posted, and we moved to a, a place called Frankston, fondly referred to as Frank Ganistan because it has been. <laughs> Very very seedy areas, um, but we we're only there for about a year, and then Dad got another posting with the Australian Bureau of Criminal Intelligence, and we we shipped off um, another ten hours north to the capital of Australia, which is called Canberra. Uh, and so I, I spent most of my formative years there uh, until I was about twenty-one.
0: Brilliant. Well, I want to get to Canberra in a second because I was there myself, uh, God, right twenty years ago, now, I think it was, That's but um, poor thing. <laughs> well, it was just an interesting, interesting moment. But um, before we do, so you know, that's a very interesting profession that your dad did. Obviously, the the audience listening, a lot of us are first responders and and military. So, what a, you know, what was your dad ex- dad's experience with that profession? Did he ever kind of sit down and talk to you about you know some of the stuff that he did? Nah, look, he
1: comes from the old guard, mate, where you just get taught to bury it down and not talk about it and not deal with it. So I really didn't know anything about what he did. I actually, when um, my um, writer who helped me write the, the book, No Time for Fear, back in Australia, she interviewed my family. And I actually found out more about my dad reading my own book than he ever told me. Like in Melbourne, he was known as the siege man because every time there was like hostages taken or some guy on a roof with a shotgun, he always managed to track him down or talk, them, talk the weapon out of their hands or something like that. So I really didn't know much about his job at all, except for it was called the Australian Bureau of Criminal Intelligence. They were posted in the telecom building up supposedly so that they could have access to people's phones. Um, but yeah,
0: that's about it. Interesting. Well, I, when I was in Canberra, so I did, I traveled, I lived in Manly, you know, by um, Sydney for a while, and then did some traveling before I ended up getting a stunt job in Japan. And when I went to Canberra, the only way I could describe it was that the city was built for far more people than actually lived there. So it probably looked a lot like the, you know, the pandemic cities that we see. So what was your experience growing up there?
1: Yeah, it's not like many other places except for small country towns. But it, And it is fundamentally a country town. It's just a very big one. It's really spread out. Basically, on Sunday, everything shut back when I was a kid. Everything. It was like a ghost town. You didn't see cars on the road. It was very peculiar to look back on. Um, and look, Dad was a swimming instructor in his spare time as well. In the cops, he held a lot of the um, police Olympic records for swimming, and he had his own squad in Melbourne. And so, a lot of the you know years from when I moved there, ten to about fifteen, was getting up early in the morning, going swimming training in an outdoor pool, uh, even in the middle of winter where everything was frozen. Um, then training at the at another all boys Catholic school in the evenings. And, you know, that in school pretty much took up a lot of your time. And then you hit about 15 and you start to discover girls and smoking and drinking. And, and I, I got bullied a lot um, all through my school life because I was short. I had big ears. I had a face full of freckles and I wasn't that athletic anywhere uh, outside of the swimming pool. And so I wasn't good at football. My dad was the coach sometimes as well. And I was the worst player on the team. So it must've been pretty embarrassing for him. <laughs> um, and so I got picked on. I got bullied a lot. Um, I really didn't like school at all. It was just very stressful An all boys Catholic school where I got bullied a lot. My own football teammates would bully me and, um, and then I, um, it, it, at home, it was very stressful as well. Dad wasn't around a lot. And so Mum was the disciplinarian and she was very hard on us as well, especially me because I was the oldest. And so it just, it all got on top of me. And I was like, I, I guess I was depressed and I started self-harming and I used to slash up my arms with an old hobby knife. Uh, used for making model airplanes and stuff. And it wasn't like I, I wanted to kill myself or anything. Um, I, I was a bit scared of God at that point. <laughs> parents made us go to church every Sunday, and I knew that uh, suicide was the cardinal sin and you go straight to hell. And so I was a little bit concerned about that. And I, I just – I didn't want to kill myself anyway. I just needed to have some semblance of control over my life. And the only way I could do that was by cutting my myself open. And the the release and the pain sort of let out a lot of that frustration. And no one ever knew. My family didn't know. None of my friends knew. Um, But fortunately, it didn't last too long. Um, I had a growth spurt around 16. And I started doing kickboxing with a friend of mine. And um, that kind of gave me a, a lot more confidence And then, um, one of the school bullies said something very nasty about my mum, and I elbowed him in the head and knocked him out. And (laughs) no, no one picked on me after that. But then, you know, in Australia, unlike America, the drinking age is 18, which means you start drinking at 16. And so we go out underage drinking, stealing goon bags of wine, you know, the, the boxes of wine. I don't know what you guys call it, but we call it a goon bag. And we go out and get drunk, and then we get into these brawls all through the city center. And it it was a period where that's all it was on the weekends. It was these rolling brawls of the Tongans fighting the Samoans, the Serbs fighting the Croatians, the Macedonians fighting someone else, the Aboriginals fighting everyone. And so that kind of became my life. I I flunked high school. I wasn't home much. And then I hit 17 um, at the end of year 12, and dad
0: kicked me out of home. So, so talk, lead me through that. So, cause I've had, um, you know, many people on. I just had Chuck Liddell. Now, he was you know, bullied and it was martial arts that really kind of empowered him. And you hear Georges Saint Pierre and, um, Justin Wren. I mean, there's so many, you know, the, the, the fighters that we revere now have similar stories, but you know, there's some that when they learn to fight, they become protector and takes them down one path. And there's some that for a while, when they learn to fight, they become, Almost become the bully for a while. So was that where you found yourself almost overcompensating from being the victim to to kind of being the predator for a little bit?
1: Not really. Uh, I never picked on anyone smaller than, or weaker than me, which is probably why I got my ass handed to me more times than not. Um, <laughs> it was just about um, using what I'd learned in a real time environment and um, practicing my skills and things like that. So I, I never turned into the bully. Um, I was just out with my friends drinking. we get drunk and we'd have a fight. And sometimes we got beat up and sometimes <laughs> we didn't. But, um, I, yeah, I think you're right. I, I, there's a lot of Special Forces guys that are the same. They came from a bully background and then um, they turn into wanting to be the protector. But at that point for me, I didn't really know much about that. I wasn't – I don't think I was given a lot of guidance into what was going to come next after i left school Um, you know I, i thought oh my dad's a cop maybe i could be a cop or there's accountants or you know all the the main jobs i didn't get guidance at school to tell me what was possible and i'm the sort of person that i want to know why i'm doing something and so i go to class and they're teaching chemistry i'm like why am i learning this what this doesn't pertain to me, I don't care about it. Uh, why? I'm, and no one sort of sat down and said, well, look, if you, you could get a job um, doing this incredible thing, you know, if you study science and you enjoy biology, you could become uh, a marine biologist and spend your days out in the open water diving with sharks and having adventures. Or, you know, if, if you like economics, you could become uh, an ambassador to Australia and you could get paid to travel the world. So there wasn't any of that. And so I I really didn't focus at all on any of the school stuff that could have catapulted me into a, a great career. Instead, I was just totally directionless. I had no idea. And so, um, I just, after I got kicked out of home, I was like sleeping on two friends of mine couches. Like there was these two sisters who their parents paid for them to live in Australia. They were from Indonesia. And so the parents weren't there. So they let me sleep on their couch for about a year. And all I did was smoke weed and party on the weekend with my unemployment check. And it took me quite a while to drag myself out of that rut. Right. Well, what about um, the music industry? I read that, that you were involved with that for a while. Yeah, that came after. So uh, I finally started working in a kitchen and behind the bars in Canberra. Um, but hospitality doesn't always uh, give you the, the best crowd to surround yourself with. You know, the the restaurant I worked in after 10 o'clock on the weekends turned into one of the pop- most popular nightclubs in Canberra. And so with that comes the hot girls, comes the guys, comes the drug dealers and so I became friends with this group of people that were probably were definitely not that great for me. And so just before I turned 21, I was at a party uh, for my friend who was getting kicked out of the country because of criminal activity. He was being deported. And I got jumped by 20 guys and really had my ass kicked. And I, I, I sat myself down after that and I said, Paul, look, If something doesn't change, you're going to be dead or in jail by the time you're 23. And even though I didn't know what I wanted to do, I knew that I didn't want to do that. And so the only thing I could think of to do was leave, just leave this environment that I'd become a product of and start again. And so I had this tiny little car, tiny little Suzuki that I had no license for. And I threw everything I owned into it, which wasn't much. And I drove 12 hours north to Brisbane. And my friend Matt had moved up there the year before as a DJ, and he got me a job uh, working behind the bar in the strip club that he worked at. And so that was pretty cool. And then I moved in with him and a couple of American dudes that were whole, involved in the hip-hop industry, and so I became a bartender in a strip club and a rapper.
0: And how did
1: that go? It, look, it was good. The, it was long hours in the club, but all my friends were hot chicks and you know the the hip-hop was fun we were running nightclubs we were running a community radio station we put out a an ep uh in 1998 we opened up for snoop Dogg. so you know i thought this this is it i've made it i'm gonna be a rapper but uh there's uh, not a lot of money in rappers in australia in 1998 and so the, the the financial stresses took over and as bands do the band broke up and i was Kind of left wandering working behind
0: a bar again, not knowing where where to turn. Well I'm still got this image because I heard you talking about getting beaten up and um Is it sit rep, I think. Is that the the podcast? Um anyway, one of one of the special forces um, podcasts that you talked on and the image of 20 guys beating up a dude, firstly, just seems so unfair. But secondly, you almost have this image of they had to be very polite and like line up to kick your ass one at a time so they could all <laughs> get a chance.
1: Well, one of their friends was like, I, I guess he was, I, I, he was a little younger than me and I guess he didn't have any money and he was trying to get me to buy him a beer and I kept saying no. And so, he threw a glass of, a glass at me and I jumped up and went at him and um. Two of his friends jumped up beside him, and one of them tried to punch me in the face. So I put my hand on his shoulder, blocking the punch, and elbowed him in the head. It's my go to move. And then all of a sudden, bop, 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 all his friends popped up. And it was, you know, it was 80% Asian dudes. And so I'm six foot. So they all just came running at me, and I backed out. We're at a bowling club, you know, a lawn bowls club. And so I backed out onto the veranda and they all just surrounded me and one dude tried to hit me with a chair and I front kicked him in the chest and I tried to hold him off as long as I could. But eventually I ended up in the fetal position, uh, <laughs> getting dragged out by the, the guy, my friend that was getting kicked out of the country was from Papua New Guinea. And so some of the big uncles, the, the big uh, Islander dudes came and dragged me out and I just fled and went home and looked at my beat up face. Yeah, it's not the same as the movies where they, where they politely
0: wait one at a time to come out. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I, I wish I had some Jackie Chan skills. <laughs> All right, well then, so you know, you'd you'd peaked as a hip hop performer. So lead me through into the military.
1: Uh, I was working behind a bar in a restaurant, um, and you know, there's there's a lot of minute stories within that as well, but it, I just knew that I I had more to offer. I you know, I, I didn't do well in school, but I was very well read. I was always reading. And so and I was always watching documentaries, Steve Irwin, and David Attenborough and all that sort of stuff. So I knew that there was this amazing world out there with so much to see and do, but I just didn't know how to get there. And so being a barman in a restaurant just wasn't cutting it. And I was a bit lost. So I turned to the one person you can turn to when, you, when you're lost. a cold mum and she said, well, why don't you talk to your two younger brothers? They've joined the army. They're in artillery. And I thought, all right, I'll, I'll give them a call. And they said, yeah, look, it's great. You get paid to travel, paid to blow stuff up, paid to play sport. But they said, whatever you do, Paul, we know you. Don't join infantry. You're not disciplined enough. You won't make it. And so I joined infantry. <laughs> You can't have your baby brothers telling you what to do. It's that reverse psychology. They probably wanted you to join infantry. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was one of the probably at that time the best choice I'd ever made in my life. You know, I'll be forever grateful to the army for not just teaching me how to be a valuable member of society and a real man, but allowing me to serve my country and that that whole thing about. Becoming the protector just enriched my life and fulfilled me and gave me value and purpose. And I I joined, I put my hand up for Airborne. And so, you know, that special Maroon Beret, the signal of paratroopers all around the world, it felt like I was really doing something special. And I I was really proud And that, that my life
0: turned a corner as soon as I joined the Army. Now, how did your conditioning serve you as you entered that program? You you were a swimmer, then you were a martial artist. Did you feel pretty prepared during boot camp and and beyond? Oh hell no! <laughs> I, I
1: stopped kickboxing about eighteen. I hadn't done swimming since I was fifteen. At one point, I was a pack a day smoker and I was drinking, and I'd done no exercise. And so, the, but the funny thing about getting physical fitness into you in those early years is it doesn't take long for it to come back and so what I was still really skinny but as you know you can't you turn up to boot camp basic training there's no drinking there's no smoking all you've got is people yelling in your ear telling you to run telling you to march and telling you to eat it's just absolute control and so it was like I was back at school times 10. And I I didn't like it whatsoever. But I did have one thing in my corner. I didn't have a choice. There was nowhere left for me to turn. You know, I, I didn't have a great education to fall back on. I had no other skills. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a home. And everything I owned was locked away somewhere else on the base in one suitcase. And so I had to Instead of trying to change my situation like I'd always been doing, I had to try a different tact and I had to change the way that I perceived everything. And so there were things I hated, like marching on the parade ground and learning to iron and scratching my face off with a razor and cleaning toilets and all that crap. But I did begin to enjoy the physical fitness aspect of it and i did enjoy learning to throw grenades and shoot machine guns and rocket launchers. and so i focused on the things that i did enjoy and just managed to get through the other crap um and very quick by the end of basic training i'd been awarded the pt award and so that's how quickly it can come back and uh, that gave me even more confidence in myself
0: yeah that's interesting very interesting um, yeah, so I've had some of the SEALs on here, the Navy SEALs, and, and you know, that was kind of their thing is if you fail out of the, you know, buds or, or the uh, you know, the classes after that, then you go back to whatever the Navy tells you you're going to do. So you could be turning turning wrenches somewhere. So I think for a couple of them, that was exactly it. It wasn't so much they had this strong mindset before, but the thought of being stuck on a submarine somewhere was the driving force for them to finish the course. Yeah, absolutely. And that you know, that that
1: came into the next phase of my career. Brilliant. Well, walk me through that. So, was it East Timor that you found
0: yourself with airborne?
1: Ah, uh, yeah. So, I I arrived at my battalion at the start of 2001, and by I think April 2002, the uh, sorry by by 1999, Australia and a multinational force had gone into East Timor, and by 2002, it was my battalion's uh, Rotation into East Timor, so we deployed for six months to East Timor, just providing security services, watching the border, all that sort of stuff. By then, all the the action was over, so it, it really wasn't that exciting. Uh, we did a couple of cool things, uh, and I got to do some courses like signals course and pre selection for snipers and stuff. Uh, but at the same time, even though there wasn't any action. I felt like I was doing my job for real instead of being at home in the bush. You know, at night you can see the twinkling lights of Sydney and you're just thinking, Geez, I wish I was in my bed and not in a muddy hole that's filling with water that I've got to sleep in tonight. Um, so it was that fulfillment of actually getting deployed and representing your country and protecting these people that had been getting slaughtered for the preceding decades. And so that, that was a, a really fulfilling uh, period, especially because I'd never seen a third world country before. You know, and most people that live in a first world country never will. And so it gives you an appreciation for all of the incredible simple things that we have, like clean running water, a toilet, showers. Um, food at the ready, electricity, TVs, entertainment. You know, we have everything at the tip of our fingers and yet so many people are sad and depressed and you go out to these third world nations and they've got nothing except their families and they're all happy. And <laughs> so it really changed my mindset about uh, gratitude.
0: Well, for people listening, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar because obviously I grew up with the BBC, which I, I would like to think was one of the best, you know, news stations out there because they actually report news. Um, but you know, we were aware of, of the genocide in East Timor and then and some of the, uh, terrorism as well, you know, aimed at Australians specifically. So can you, can you just kind of give a backstory of that conflict and then some of the terrorism that your, you know, men and women were fighting after that?
1: Well, what happened was uh, Indonesia, as they do, as they're currently doing West Papua, Uh, had invaded west timor and took it over and they wanted to move over into east timor and take that as well and so they were sending um night raids of these you know they're all dressed in black and the locals called them ninjas and they'd send these um patrols of soldiers in and militia and they'd just go around rampantly killing and murdering Uh, and there was a a bunch of australian uh, journalists there's a really good movie about it actually called balabo where some Aussie journalists, some foreign journalists as well, I think, um, got slaughtered by the Indonesians. And so in, in 1999, my brother who was attached to my uh, unit, he was, uh, airborne artillery. So he, that was his first trip there. And that was when Australia first went in and there was a lot of action then. Um, but it simmered over the years. And then the, um, East Timorese militia, the Falentil, had risen up and they were fighting back against Indonesia. Then the Indonesian special forces, the Capacis, would come in and do raids. And then after my deployment, it, was, it, it had pretty much simmered, but then there was little outbreaks here and there. But it was actually quite a huge conflict.
0: Yeah, I remember seeing, like you said, there's just a huge amount of people died. When it comes to you know, the actual po- total population, the percentage of men and women and children that were murdered was horrific.
1: Yeah. And it didn't really feel like anyone, any nation did anything until they discovered, obviously as always oil. They discovered the East Timorese oil shelf. And then that was when the multinational force went in. They broke deals to get access to the oil. There you go. That's, that's why we help out. You know, there's, there's a lot of places that are, like I mentioned earlier, West Papua where the Indonesians are in and they're, they're stealing all the resources and killing all the locals. But you know, no one does anything because there's nothing there for them and China basically just says, Hey Australia, mind your own business and Australia does. So it, it's it's such you know we we all we've all seen it now, the hypocrisy in government. You know, this isn't a new thing.
0: Yeah. No, and it's so sad. I mean even I've had this discussion before on here, even when you look at things like um slavery, you know, people go, oh, it's you know, it's it's racist and it's about skin colour. It's like, no, it's not. It's a bu- it's a it's a handful of assholes that bought human beings and made them work for them for free so they can make a shitload of money. It's about money and power. It's nothing to do, even, even with race. It's just about free, oh, yeah. free workforce.
1: Absolutely. They, they do it in China. They do it in Africa. Uh, around the, the time of the, the African slave trade was a huge uh, slave trade in the Irish as well. And so it's, it's not race-specific by any means. This is happening and has happened all over the world to many races
0: yeah absolutely well so you had that deployment to timor um were you able to make it to the middle east no uh i
1: i came back from east timor and uh, around october 2002 and then uh at we we just went back to training and training and training and it was just very repetitive and my, you know, my work ethic was slipping, my job satisfaction was slipping, and then all of a sudden, I was away on an exercise uh, in New South Wales, and my CSM, my company sergeant major, came up to me with a mobile phone, which is weird. You know, I'm a lowly private, and my, my CSM comes up to me and goes, hey, hey, Paul, the boss wants to talk to you, and I'm just thinking, oh, no, what have I done? There is no good reason for the, the major to want to talk to me. And so I picked it up and I'm like, yeah, boss, what's going on? And he said, hey, Dutchie, do you want to go to the sandpit? And I was like, hell yes, I do. And he's right. Pack your stuff. You're coming back to base. Uh, you're going on pre-deployment training. I was like, yes, this is the best news ever. And so I went back and there was only me and five of my mates that were going to deploy with a lot of the pogues. Um, and so we got all, you know, started learning Arabic, got our desert cams, all that sort of stuff, got a lot of in-country briefings. And then four days before we left, We were in a meeting room and they said, "Uh, you infantry guys, um, go back to your rooms and pack your bags. You're not going anymore. And so (laughs) it was like getting left at the altar. Uh, (laughs) Understandably, we went out to Bondi and got hammered that night um, and went back to work. And it was, you know, that just made my my job satisfaction slip even more. And I I didn't want to – I didn't know what else to do because – you know, I thought I'd found my place and all of a sudden I'm not happy here. And I didn't want to become one of these you know, crusty old sergeants that just seems to hate life. And it's just his only enjoyment is being at work, yelling at everyone. And so I thought, you know what? It's a big military. Surely there's something else that I can just sort of sidestep into that's going to be better than being filthy and dirty and smelly all the time. And we went on a course called Hewitt. Um, which is helicopter underwater escape training where you learn to escape from a helicopter if it gets dropped into the ocean. And there was these two guys there on scuba gear acting as safety divers. And I'm like, how do you get that job? Like, what do these guys do? And so I went over and I talked to them and they're like, oh yeah, we're clearance divers. I'm like, oh yeah, what's that? I kind of heard about it. I, I didn't really know much about them. I knew they were special. No one looked directly at them. Just sort of went, oh shit there's those guys. And I thought to myself, you know, what's, what's stopping me from being one of those guys? What's stopping me from being someone that people within my industry looks up to? And I feel like a lot of the times we ask ourselves these really hard internal questions and we don't give ourselves an answer. You know, we just kind of, we treat it as hypothetical, you know, what's stopping me? And you don't give yourself an answer. But those big, scary questions and decisions, they're the ones that we owe ourselves the most to answer. And so I asked myself again, I said, you know, what's, what is stopping me? And I thought nothing really, there's nothing except for, for fear. And I'd already overcome so much of that fear. I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to give it a go. And it took about 12 months for my paperwork to go through to get accepted onto the first phase, um, which is called Ships Divers. It's where you learn to scuba dive and search for bombs, both of which I'd never done in my life. <laughs> so it was a pretty steep learning curve. And then learning all the the Navy jargon as well. Um, and I passed that course by the skin of my teeth. But... By doing that, that gave me the opportunity to try out um, to go to the selection course, out the clearance diver acceptance testing. And so, hang on, my dog is the loudest drinker in the world. I don't know if you can hear that. <laughs> That's okay. I got a German Shepherd that drinks like that too. <laughs> Otis, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I went back to my battalion for a little while. And went went into training because I knew what was to come. I, I'd heard about this selection process, and I wasn't disappointed by <laughs> any means. This was ten days of pure mental, physical, and emotional anguish. Um, sw- you know, swimming in the middle of the night from eleven p.m. till five o'clock in the morning across Sydney Harbour, pitch black waters. Like, and then you you get a couple hours sleep, and then you got to run half a marathon. And then pack marches and stretcher carries and first aid stands and mind games and breath hold and on and on for 10 days. Um, And I went into it like we were talking about earlier. There is no way I am going to go back to my army battalion as a failure because I don't want to be there. This is my shot, my one and only shot to drag my ass out of this place and and achieve something that I never thought I could have done in my life. And so I went into it with a mindset where they're either going to kill me or I'm going to pass. And fortunately, I passed. And what was the
0: attrition rate for that? How many did you start with? And how many did you finish with? It's it's about,
1: we started with about 36 and we finished with 10. Wow.
0: Yeah, that's pretty yeah. significant. So it's
1: anywhere from, say, 40% to 70% failure rate.
0: Right. And then just, just as a side note, because I, I had Dan Pronk on, I, I believe. You, do you guys know each other? We don't know each other personally, but we've talked uh, on and off throughout the years. Okay, beautiful. Well, he's obviously Australian SAS. So, um, what made you choose the diving route versus that, um, you know, that special operations route?
1: Uh, I, I just didn't want to be a soldier anymore. I wanted to do something different. Um, I just had a gut full of being in the bush. I'd had enough. Um, I'm not the sort of, I've never done one thing for longer than, than that in my life. And so as much as that would have been another world, another avenue of growth, I really just wanted to do something totally different, and going from the air and the land to under the ocean felt like a, a natural progression for me, especially being such a good swimmer.
0: All right, and with with those divers, so how are they used in in warfare?
1: So it's a very multifaceted job because Australia doesn't have the population of, say, America, where everyone sort of specialises um we we have four main elements um i believe they've changed over the years now um but the, the fundamentals are we do maritime tactical operations so o2 swimming you know reconnaissance uh, reconnaissance diving attack diving um and then we have mine countermeasures where you're looking for unexploded sea mines and bombs and getting rid of those and then we have under, underwater battle damage repair, which is hard hat diving using drills, chainsaws, explosive weapons. And then we have EOD as well. Uh, so land-based EOD, uh, explosive ordnance disposal. So we do it underwater and we do it on land as well. So And you have to be proficient in all of those. Once you, you pass, it's a 49-week course to learn everything and then – You'll go to the. There's only two teams. There's Team One in Sydney, Team Four in Western Australia. They always say Team One for fun, Team Four for war. Uh, so <laughs> I, got, I got sent to Team One, and then you get put into your element and you focus on that. But you could be called out to go and switch elements on any given day. So you have to be an expert in everything.
0: Well, that's how the fire service is. In In America, we do the EMS and the fire side. So, you know, we really are a jack of all trades, master of none. And obviously, there are, you know, some men and women that specialize and are stronger in one particular area. Um, but that, to me, is the allure of the job. And, and you know, my journey you know, wasn't supposed to be a fireman in England for whatever reason, according to the universe. So when I got here, I got to be, you know, fire and a paramedic as well. But I, you know, that, that, that is the draw for the fire service is when the tones go off, you literally don't know what you're going to be doing. And it's very exciting. So, was that kind of the draw to you? Like you said, you were sick of, of soldiering specifically and now you have this giant Swiss army knife to work from?
1: <laughs> well, honestly, I went in a little bit blind. I didn't know all about that. Uh, I just knew that they went diving and they looked cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> Yeah, what's that old saying? If you don't know what you're doing, at least look cool doing it. There we go. Uh, so, yeah, I, I discovered a lot of it while I was going through it. But, yeah, that's that's the reason that I loved it so much. You never knew what you were going to be doing on any given day. One day you might be out in a helicopter doing an aerial mine disposal. The next day you're searching the bottom of the Russian ambassador's ship for bombs Or, you know, at one point I had to go out, I was the first person to dive on a lost um, Japanese midget submarine that had been located off the coast of North Sydney. And so to dive down, you know, 57 meters, hard hat and film all that sort of stuff and collect sand for the um, descendants of those uh, submarine pilots that were still in the submarine, you know, you never knew what you were going to do. And that really was what, what kept me interested in it.
0: Beautiful. Well, again, so you have the skill set now. Were you able to apply it during your time there? No, that's the thing.
1: (laughs) I left the army to go to a a deployable unit, and then I never deployed anywhere except on exercises, and all my army mates went to Iraq and Afghanistan like three (laughs) or four times.
0: (laughs) But I had the better job. So, so why? yeah, exactly, because you were doing all the fun stuff, so… Team one. (laughs) Um, So lead me into February 2009 then kind of, you know, fill fill in the gap and then then let's talk about that day.
1: Um, So I'd been with the dive teams for about three and a half years and we got uh, a job to pretend to be attack swimmers and divers for the R&D department of the military who were testing out uh, new equipment, this unmanned video and sonar. Um, the goal was to be able to put this equipment anywhere around the world on a ship on a wharf turn it on and you can walk away and the the video would detect automatically detect attack swimmers coming to put bombs in our ships and the sonar would detect attack divers under the surface of the water and so we were in sydney harbour uh right along the big navy base there and we were pretending to be the attack swimmers and so it, it was like Six in the morning, I had my new guy just swimming basically from point A to point B. This, is, this was a really boring day. It was a, basically counterterrorism uh, exercise, but it wasn't as cool as that. We were just swimming in the water. Uh, after about 30 minutes, I pulled my new guy out and offered to take over, and I, I jumped in, rolled out the, the back of the, the Zodiac, and I had a pair of black fins on and a black wetsuit. And I was just swimming what we what we call finning. I'm on the surface on my back, just kicking my legs. And I was only in the water for about four or five minutes. And then I looked over my left shoulder to make sure that I was going in the right direction still. And as I turned around, I got a really big whack in my leg. And at first, I I didn't panic because it didn't hurt. I thought maybe the guys. And the boat got a little bit too close but I knew they were actually quite far away so I didn't know what it was I turn around and all of a sudden there's this massive shark's head attached to me and I had no idea what to do I'd never even seen a large dangerous shark next to public speaking sharks were my worst nightmare and so it took a second for me to process what was going on and then I, I realized you know I've seen Discovery Channel. I've seen the crocodile hunter. I'll jab it in the eyeball. But when I tried, I couldn't move my arm, and I looked down and I could see the teeth embedded in my wrist, and every time I went to pull my arm, I could see the the skin tearing. And so I reached over with my left hand to go for the eyeball, but I couldn't reach. So I grabbed it by the nose and I tried to lever it off me, but all that did was push the teeth of the lower jaw deeper into my leg. And that's when I got the first the first inclination of pain but you know the teeth on these animals are so sharp it just went in like razor blades and I cocked back you know last ditch effort the last thing I knew to do was punch it in the nose so I cocked back to do that but it must have decided that I was food and it started to shake its head and that's when all the fight went out of me the pain was just so horrific there was nothing I could do It took me underwater and was just shaking me like a rag doll. And so I'm in panic. I can't do anything. My lungs are filling with water. And you can watch the footage of it. It's actually on YouTube. It lasted about eight seconds. But when I go back and think about it, I break it down into minute detail. And I can remember everything that happened. I can remember everything that I was thinking. And I remember thinking at one point, I'm not going home today. I'm going to die right now. And our brains and our bodies are such incredible machines that they can process things in these instances like lightning. And I thought to myself, am I ready to die? And I looked back on who I was in the early days of my life to who I had become and all of the things that I'd overcome. And I thought to myself, I've lived 10 lives in these 31 years. I have no regrets. If I'm going to die, then I'm good to go. And I kind of just let go and was waiting to die. And then the shark's teeth had met all the way in the middle of my thigh and ripped out my hamstring and ripped off my right hand at the same time. And because it wasn't attached to me anymore, my wetsuit made me buoyant and I popped to the surface and I thought, shit, I'm not dead. I better get out of here before it comes back. And so I start to swim and I take my arm out of the water, but my hand's missing and my arm ends at the end of my wetsuit. And so my medical training kicked in and I thought, I've got to keep that wound above my heart to stem the bleeding, not knowing what had happened to my leg. All I knew was I couldn't feel it. And so I was swimming back to the boat with one hand and one leg, just thinking this shark or another shark that smelt the blood is going to come in and attack me. And I was just waiting for that bite, those teeth to wrap around my leg and drag me under and kill me. But I just kept swimming. And eventually the guys in the boat got near me and they said they saw I was swimming through a massive pool of my own blood. they said it was so thick they could actually taste it in the air. And fortunately, they got to me first, pulled me out of the boat, and instantly commenced first aid to keep me alive until the paramedics could get there.
0: That's amazing. Well, there's such a powerful moment in that where you went from being at peace with your death, which must have been incredibly powerful, and I'm sure it's something that you carry to this day, but then when there's that absolute minute glimmer of hope that you're going to live, as you said, the brain completely switched gears, and you went from you know, submitting to fighting again.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was... it. What coming that close to death did for me was it taught me that death really isn't that scary. You know, I I faced it in the most violent of horrific ways, but right there at the end, I wasn't afraid because I had no regrets. And so it freed me from clinging to this mortal coil and being afraid of things and realizing that the only thing that I really had to fear was not making the most of my life and going to my deathbed next time with regrets. And so now I get to live this life where I'm free from the, the fears and all i get to do is focus on how i'm going to enrich my life enrich the lives of the people around me and make sure that i go to my deathbed next time feeling exactly the same way i did that first time
0: yeah well and it's so powerful i had a um palliative care like hospice uh, physician on um and a couple of times and he's actually a triple amputee himself very long story short he touched the uh, electrical wire on a cable car in in princeton and it arched um it arched through his wristwatch and he lost both legs and one arm um and you know so his kind of uh doctor focus went to palliative care because he was a palliative care patient obviously a very long-term one um but in the discussions about all the people he he'd seen pass it was the same observation if people felt that they had fulfilled and had you know had, had achieved what they wanted to in their lives their deaths were actually very peaceful and he said the ones that struggled the most were the ones that hadn't had the courage to chase their goals and it was the regret itself that was actually haunting them
1: yeah and, or even even not chasing your goals but smaller things like unresolved issues with your family and friends where, you know, you you wished for years that you'd made up with a family member you've been fighting with, but you, you just never went ahead and did it. And you go to your deathbed with that one regret, I wish I'd reconnected with my dad, my daughter or something like that. And so my advice would be to never, ever let those things just stagnate. Because you, you you never know what's going to happen, it could be tomorrow, it could be next year, it could be ten years from now, but that that 's the thing about life you 'll never know when it 's going to come for you, so make sure that you you do the right thing to fulfill your soul, and sometimes that 's just by doing the hardest thing, which is asking for forgiveness or saying you 're sorry, um, but it makes the world of difference to
0: your soul yeah, beautiful. well, thank you for that insight. Um, just from a, an emergency medicine point of view, were there any, any things that happened from when you, you know, were pulled up onto the boat onwards that you credit with saving your life? Any kind of takeaways for the, the medics and Corman and everyone else that's listening from a medical perspective? Yes, so much. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, um, we had an OxyViva in the boat. Uh, We had a minimal med kit. We didn't have a tourniquet. And so the guys took their T-shirts off of their back. And so my whole hamstring was almost surgically removed. And so while I – because I was head towards the bow of the Zodiac, and there's not a lot of room in that. And so I'm tourniqueting the end of my arm with my left hand as tight as I can. The guys in the boat had taken off their T-shirts, jammed that into the wound, and then strapped it down with straps from a life jacket. Um, but by the time we got to the, the big wharf at the Navy base, which wasn't far away, it was, you know, a hundred meters away, but it was towering 10 feet over the water. And so they had to build this whole ramp out of wood with these builders, um, at an emergency rate to get me up there. The boat was an inch deep in my blood. My chief who was on the wharf with the scientists already thought I was dead. It wasn't until he saw me like move that he knew I was alive, but he could see that I was still leaking blood out of my leg. And he took the strap off and there was an artery squirting. And so he had to grab the new guy and get him to stick his hand inside my leg and pinch close that artery with his fingers and hold it for 10 minutes until the paramedics arrived. And by the time the paramedics got there, I was in total agony. And so they drugged me up with morphine, but because I'd lost so much blood – They couldn't give me enough to get rid of most of the pain. And so I'm in the ambulance on the way to the hospital begging for more morphine, but they couldn't give it to me. And then all of a sudden, the morphine hit, the pain went away, but I didn't have enough energy to to make my chest go up and down. And I couldn't talk louder than a whisper. So I had to try and communicate with the paramedic that I couldn't breathe. And so he coached me through it, basically said, Paul save your energy, take small, um, small, short breaths, take as many as you can. And then when you've got enough energy, take one big breath and fill your, your lungs with air. And so it kind of became a bit of a Lamar's class. in the-
0: <laughs> With your friend's
1: finger up your junk. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that, that really got me through because I actually f- felt like I was going to die because I couldn't breathe. Um, but that really helped. By the time we got to the hospital, which is about 15 minutes away, I was fairly stabilized. I was stabilized enough to um, – the doctor was running alongside my trolley and I was trying to bribe him with a case of beer to save my leg, as, as military people do. Uh, <laughs> but uh, after that, you know, I, I blanked out. I was in an induced coma for the next two days. Um, th- I think they put 300 donations of blood into me. So 150 litres, just as soon as they put it in, it would just squirt back out. And so they're just, you know, you could have the best doctors in the world, but if you don't have that donated blood by those amazing people, then you're not going to live. And so... Thank you to everyone that donates blood, donates plasma. Um, you are legitimately saving lives um, It's taken me quite some time to repay those three hundred donations, but i 'm chipping away at it.
0: <laughs> you know what's really sad is being English i can't donate blood and i've got quite vascular arms too, so you, know, you can tell that the blood bank <laughs> people get a little you know tingle in their pants when they see me but yeah, I, exactly I got the mad cow exactly exactly you know it was i mean it was a thing definitely, but it was a very long time ago. And I guess they've just never put enough energy in in the research to to you know to take my blood and make sure it's okay. But yeah, I physically have never been able to give a drop, and it's it's sad, you know. I would love to. I do it whenever I go home, and I, I give plasma. Beautiful. Yeah, I guess I could do it if if they ever let me to go home again when the borders open up. <laughs> All right. Well, Where then. Um, so I live in Florida. I'm in Ocala, which oh. is right in the heart of the state. Gotcha. So, yeah, I moved over here about just almost 20 years ago. Great, great sharks over in Florida. Yeah, we've got some some super ones over here. <laughs> we'll have to talk about that in a minute. Actually, one of my guests was Bethany Hamilton, too. So, yeah, she's the oh, second. I know Bethany Hamilton well. Oh, you do? Yeah, she's amazing. Amazing. I mean, as are you. And uh, that's a beautiful thing with both of you that I'm sure we'll get to that in a bit. But, you know, the fact that you went back in the water and and, you know, all the people that haven't been bitten think they never would. And the two that actually were both ended up you know, being advocates for sharks.
1: Yeah, I think that's a a fairly common theme as well because the people that do get attacked by sharks are more often than not ocean people. And we go into the ocean knowing the risks and accepting them. And so you can't really get upset when something goes wrong. You know, every time you go into the ocean... It's a wild place. Anything could go wrong. And so you, you're signing this waiver really to say, okay, I accept this, whatever happens. And so you don't blame the shark for being sharks. They're just sharks doing sharky shit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that's a pretty common theme amongst uh, shark attack survivors
0: yeah i always found it weird you know when you did have an attack and then you know the fishermen would find a shark they'd say it was the shark and they'd catch it and kill it and they'd be like all right problem solved and i'm like well is it really <laughs> i mean from what i understand the ocean's quite a big place and i'm pretty sure that shark had mates and family and yeah, i don't think you solved it. you just made yourself feel better
1: yeah it's a it's really a ridiculous mindset it's all about um you know the government does it a lot in australia they they uh, cull sharks. They don't call it a cull, but they put all these nets out all over the beaches, and the nets don't go to the ocean floor. They only go a, a couple of hundred meters wide. They don't stop the sharks from getting into the beach. It's just to make it look like they're doing something.
0: Yeah. Well, with with your journey, so you were obviously you know uh, an Uber athlete in the military sense prior to this event. Tell me about your, your journey physically but also your journey mentally because, of you know, your, your identity had been forced to be changed.
1: Yeah. Um, look, very early on, I decided that if I was going to be able to mentally overcome this, I needed to still have some semblance of value and purpose. And the the best way that I could achieve that would be by getting back to work. And I was fortunate that because it was such a a huge media event, you know, no clearance diver had ever been attacked by a shark. Uh, No one had been attacked in Sydney Harbour in 60 years. So this was worldwide news and even bigger in Australia. And so, the chief of Navy, I don't know, I, I guess to save face, to make it look like they were doing something, he said as long as I wanted a job in the Navy, I would have one. I don't think he realized I wanted my old job back, but that was, that was the case. And so I went into my recovery determined to go back to the Navy clearance divers. And much of the time, I didn't believe that was possible. And a lot of people told me it was not impossible, but not all of your goals and dreams have to be possible in that moment. You just have to work towards them. You have to create small goals and challenges to get you on the road to that dream. And so it was, dude, it was really rough. Um, I had so much drugs pumping into me. I had a bulb of ketamine um, continuously draining into my bloodstream. I had morphine on tap. And so a lot of the time I was tripping out, I was delirious. Um, but day by day, um, you know, and I was so lucky to have such an incredible group of friends and family that came to my bed. They kept me company. They, they kept my spirits up. My buddy would sneak in a bottle of beer and I'd have a morphine shot. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, and and day by day I started, you know, I could, I could get up out of bed. And so, I would hop around the nurse's station. I'd go out into the hallway, and I would see how fast I could hop around the Navy ward, and I'd freaked out a lot of the nurses. But my mates brought in protein. They brought in weights for me. Um, I sweet-talked the nurses into giving me double rations because I'd lost 10 kilos in 10 minutes. This is not a weight loss regime I would recommend. But I needed to bulk up and get strong. I needed to keep my mind active. So I read a lot. And I needed to know that there were tools out there that could help me achieve my goal. And so I spent a lot of time on this incredible thing called the internet. Um, you know, th- there's no reason for you not to know anything anymore. We live in such an incredible age where we have the wealth of the world's knowledge within a few keystrokes. And so I utilized that and I looked at videos of Paralympic athletes doing incredible things in sport. I, I watched videos of these dudes with no legs climbing mountains on their hands. Um, and so the more research I did, the more it dispelled the fear that I wouldn't be able to live the way I wanted to. And so that really buoyed me, just knowing that if these people can do it, there's no reason that I can't do it as well. And so after nine weeks, I went home. Um, They wanted me to stay a little bit longer, but I, I convinced them that I would recover better at home, under my own steam, in my own bed. I had a very good friend of mine, Brock, who moved in with me and acted as my carer. Uh, didn't hurt that he was a chef as well. So he cleaned nice. and cooked and he drove me off to the army gym every day so I could learn to use my body again. And you know, I, I had to, as the army taught me, I had to improvise, adapt, and overcome. Because trying to do having one hand and doing bench press and push-ups can really mess with with what you're trying to achieve. And so I had to work out new ways to do things. Um, and so I got on the internet once again and I found this lifting hook that people use for deadlifts and I could slip that over my forearm and I could put a dumbbell in it and I could do curls like that. Or I could put the hook into the cables and I could do flies and triceps. And so just by spending more and more time in the gym and just experimenting, I learned better and better ways to use Use this new body that I had to rebuild it, make it stronger, and then as time went on, I also was given prosthetics, which helped insurmountably because hopping sucks. You know, my balance is good, my left leg strength is amazing, but hopping still
0: sucks. It's much better to walk. Well, it's been it's fascinating. I've had I've had you know so many incredible men and women um, that are amputees. You know, some are military that were wounded, some were congenital amputees. And, uh, you know, seeing the, the journey of the adaptive athletes, especially over the last five years, you know, with, you know, with the movements really becoming popular, with their having, you know, competitions for, for adaptive outside of, you know, the, the uh, Paralympics that we had before that. What have you witnessed over the evolution of prostheses and just the adaptive community in general?
1: Well, fortunately, I came into it in an era, uh, sadly, where we we're in the middle of a war. Um, but because of that, there were so many American soldiers coming home, missing limbs that the American government had thrown billions of dollars into helping these prosthetic companies make better devices. And so I came into it with, you know, there's never been a better leg or hand prosthetic in the world and I get the best. And so very fortunate in, in that realm. Um, but it's funny now that there's no, you know, no surface war that people are talking about a lot of that funding has dried up and so has the the advances in those prosthetics they're very they're like apple iphones now whereas it's like it's a tiny upgrade on the next limb whereas before it was these huge upgrades like now now your prosthetic is waterproof now your prosthetic has a running mode now it's kind of stale um but you know thank god for smart people being able to make these things because if it was up to me i'd I'd make a great pirate at Halloween, but that's about it.
0: <laughs> so with, with all the things that you had to relearn, yeah, was there any that, that kind of spring to mind that were the most challenging, the, the, the biggest <laughs> achievement when you finally got it?
1: Yeah, the, the dumb things that you don't think of because I was right-handed. So now I had to learn how to do not everything just left-handed, but only left-handed. And weird things like brushing your teeth. Like I didn't have that fine motor movement, and I kept jabbing myself in the gums. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, le- learning to drive and control the pedal with my left foot—you um, know—I was bunny hopping down the street for the first week because you've, your left foot doesn't have that sensitivity. It's either on the clutch or it's just slowly coming off. But um, yeah, it's just little things like that—you know—having one hand using a dustpan and broom still has it over me.
0: that's always a pain in the ass anyway no matter who you are (laughs) yeah i just break out the vacuum cleaner (laughs) all right well then you were hell-bent on you know obviously getting your old job back so kind of walk me through that that journey into the training side and then and then carry on to your decision to transition out
1: um so after six months um uh, six months after the attack I felt like I was ready. I had my prosthetic leg. I had my prosthetic hand. I trained myself into a a pretty ridiculous um, level of fitness. And all I wanted to do was go back to work. Six months of not doing anything except just working out and being left with your own thoughts. And it can get really exhausting. Um, And trying to overcome a lot of the self-confidence issues as well. Like every time I left the house, everyone was staring at me. And so whether they knew who I was or not, it didn't matter because there's this there's this guy with one leg and a robot leg and a robot hand walking down the street. And so everyone stares at you. And so overcoming that was very hard. That was the first step. And I realized, look, I can't control whether they're going to look at me or not. But what I can control to some degree is how they perceive me. Now, I can, I can walk around feeling the pain and I can be worried about what they're thinking and my head will be down and my soul, shoulders will slump and they'll look at me and say, oh, that poor guy. Or I could do the hard thing. I could walk and practice my walking to a degree where I, I look like I'm walking almost normal. I can pin my shoulders back. I can hold my head high. And if they look at me, I can just smile at them. And you'd be amazed how quickly that smile gets reflected back. Or if I'm not feeling like smiling at anyone because I'm in a shit mood, I just won't look at anyone. And that, that way I learned to enjoy all the things around me. I was living at Bondi, so i look at the water, i look at the trees, i look at the dogs playing. And so that got me through the confidence issues to the point where I'm like, okay, I want to go back to work. And I went to the dive school – sorry, I went to my team boss and I said, hey, boss, can I come back to work? And he said, no. He said, to go to the dive teams, you have to be deployable for war. And I said, look, I understand that. I'm not as fleet on my feet as I once was, and my trigger finger doesn't even work. So I I get that. But there was one thing I learned from watching an old Navy diver staple of a movie, which is Men of Honor. Maybe I could go and teach. And I said, why don't you let me pass on this knowledge to the next generation of divers and and repay all of this this information that you've given to me and maybe even inspire some of them as well. And so they thought about it for a while and then they gave me this series of hoops I had to jump through and I passed them all. I passed my physical fitness, I passed my medical, uh, I passed getting on to the moving dive boats and things like that and they couldn't say no and so... They said, all right, Paul, you can work three half days a week. And so I just turned up five full, day, full days a week and just didn't go home until I had to. And, you know, I had something to prove to them, but I also had something to prove to myself that I could still mix it up with my buddies and do the job that I'm hired to do. And so I put my heart
0: and my soul into achieving that. Beautiful. Now, with with uh, Bethany, obviously, she... Yeah, you know, she went back in her, I think it was her parents film the first time that she went back in the ocean, you know, and again, with her mindset, you know, that she was offered the adaptive divisions and she was like, no, I'm going to, I'm a surfer. I'm going to surf in in the regular divisions. Did you have a moment like that when you first entered the ocean specifically? Was there any hesitation or had you already that, that kind of making peace with death taken that trepidation out of it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was more the case. It it was actually three months to the day after the shark attack. Um, my stitches and, and it only took me that long because I still had the stitches and staples in my leg and I couldn't go into the water with them. So as soon as they were out, I grabbed my two buddies. We went down to Bondi with the surfboards and, uh, I hopped down through the soft sand and got to the water and everyone was staring at me and the paparazzi were taking photos. And I, I, you know, it's, it's difficult enough to hop through soft sand with an eight-foot surfboard, but then trying to hop down through the water as well was even harder. But I pulled it off without falling over and embarrassing myself, and I, I put my board down into the water, and I whispered to myself, please don't let me paddle around in a circle. <laughs> and uh, I, I didn't. I got smashed by every wave for about 45 minutes, but eventually I got out the back and I was in the sun with my mates in the ocean, and I was living. And it felt so fucking good just to be out there. And it didn't matter if I got smashed. It didn't matter if I I couldn't stand up. I just laid on my stomach and enjoyed
0: the water and the sun. Beautiful. I mean, that's 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 incredible. Because I mean, I even myself. I I love the ocean. It's definitely one of my happy places. And it's it's interesting. If you're distracted, if I'm playing with my son, if I'm you know body surfing even, I'm not thinking about it. But when you're out there and you're swimming around, you let your little mind start going, you know, there's that fear. But just like you said, it's completely out of your control. You're in their playground. You know, if if it happens, it happens. But you can't let that fear dictate all the incredible swims that you could have on the what-if scenario.
1: Yeah, it's such a rare occurrence. You know, it's, it's really, really... You
0: got more chance of winning the lottery, really absolutely all right well then so you you know you achieved your goal of of returning you ended up training you know the the people at the dive school so what at what point did you say all right it's time to it's time to move on and do something else
1: um it was three years in so i was doing it for three years and i just you know the, the first year and a half was good but the second year and a half was just it just started to to kill me really because I was working myself so hard trying to keep up with everyone. And when you're teaching these courses, you know, you're at work sometimes at 5 a.m. And you don't leave till 2 a.m. And then you got to be back again the next day. And so it was hard enough for me to get sleep. And I, I was trying to get myself off the drugs very early on. And so I, wa- I wasn't taking anything um because I didn't want to get drug tested and have opiates in my system and things like that. So I had to totally stay off them and just deal with the pain mentally, but it was breaking me down piece by piece. And I was just tired and I was getting cranky and I wasn't being the instructor I wanted to be. I was being the instructor that I, I hated on course and I, that wasn't fulfilling me. And you know, the reason I did this was for fulfillment for value and purpose. And I just lost that shine. and, all I wanted to go was do was go back to the teams. And so I went to the dive school boss and I asked him what the chances of that were. And he gave it to me straight. He said, under this current administration, zero. And so I'd been doing a little bit of public speaking, but I'd already started to get paid. um, Basically my two weeks Navy wage in one hour of speaking. And so I thought, okay, what do I do here? Do I, Keep putting up with this. There's no more Paul being able to go sideways into a new role. No one's going to take me. I'm only here at the dive school through the grace of the Navy. And so do I continue down this path and try to learn to love it and maintain my security blanket of a paycheck every two weeks? Or do I do something crazy? Do I do something really risky and really scary and go out and try and make a career out of this public speaking? And that was terrifying because... How I didn't know how long I would be able to do that for. How long are people going to want to hear about my stupid little story? Um, what if I'm not good at it? And all those things, doubts crept in. But I realized every single time I'd embraced one of those really big, scary decisions like leaving home, like joining the army, like changing to the Navy. It always worked out because I threw my heart and my soul into it and they were the best decisions that I'd ever made. And so I decided to stick with the routine and believe that I'd set a precedence and if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go in wholeheartedly and I'm just going to make it work. And so I decided to leave the Navy and strike out with speaking. Um, I got a book deal then as well which helped advertise me for speaking and the speaking work picked up and I started making more and more money and getting more and more work to the point where I was making my month's navy wage times three and so I I was on cloud nine I'm working hardly you know a tenth of the time I'm making twice as much money and I get to spend all of my spare time doing whatever the hell I want. I was like, "This is amazing. This is the way to live." And all it did was cost me an arm and a leg.
0: (laughs) Well, there's a lot of people that you know that have been on here that struggled when they transition out, whether it's out of the military, fire, police, because the men and women that they serve with were their tribe, and that's yeah. And also, they identified as a police officer, you know, a soldier, so. But the, the missing link, missing element, I think, with a lot of them is there wasn't something to immediately transition into. So did you struggle at all with losing that, that group or was that speaking engagement powerful enough that you made the transition easily?
1: No, the, what the speaking engagements did, um, and I don't suffer from PTSD um, as far as I know. Uh, I don't have depression and I I don't have nightmares. I don't have flashbacks, nothing like that. And I think that is mostly due to the case of the public speaking because I didn't have any therapy. I didn't have any counseling. um, But getting on stage and being able to offload all of those emotions to a crowd of people that I didn't know, I feel like that's what helped me get it all out and overcome what could have been many more dark days. Um, but leaving, yeah, leaving the military was surprising. It was like having the umbilical cut one day you're there and the next you're just not, and they've just moved on without you and you have no connection to them. Um, and I stayed in as part of the reserve diving team, but they only had a job every couple of months sometimes. And so I still didn't have my tribe around me. I didn't have my mates and, so when I could, I would go to the Navy base in the mornings and I'd go into the gym when I knew some of them would be working out. So I maintained a, a minimal connection there, but yeah, it was like one second I had this awesome crew of mates and we worked hard together and all, And then you don't. And you have to get, you really, really have to get comfortable in your own company, um, which was easier for me because I've never actually minded my own company. I, I'm not an overtly social person unless I've had a a couple of beers under my belt and then I'm like super social, (laughs) but I I don't mind the quiet, but it it does reach a crescendo where you get lonely. Um, And even more so when you're traveling and speaking because it's flights by yourself. It's hotel rooms by yourself. You might get an hour on stage and then maybe an hour after talking to people, but then it's back to your hotel by yourself, back on the plane, back home to yourself. And so you really do have to get comfortable with your own skin and your own thoughts. And I think that's really key to overcoming some of that stuff is utilizing that voice in your head that we all have and ensuring that that voice is telling you positive thoughts and you're practicing putting that positivity and the positive thoughts as, on a cycle in your head instead of feeding yourself the negativity you know that old story about you know the two two wolves that live inside you and the one that Lives is the one that you feed, and so you have to feed those positive emotions and those positive thoughts and I think a lot of that comes by setting goals and challenges and then chasing after them, so you have to you have to keep yourself busy beautiful,
0: yeah, and with the speaking, I can relate completely because i I haven't had anything you know as not the, not as a scale. I know that people talk about it all the time, you can't compare traumas, but you know i I had stuff happen when I was young, I had stuff happen in my career. Nothing, you know, immense, but definitely things that, that you know, ha- had a weight to them. Um, but I've always dealt very well, and especially recently. And it's the same thing. Like, here we are now. I get to have an incredible conversation with you. I-, I ended up writing a book as well. So the power of conversation, the power of storytelling, I think, is such an undervalued tool.
1: Yeah. It, it, the thing I like about what I do on stage is it doesn't matter if you're not in the military. It doesn't matter if you haven't been through a a horrific experience like me, the way that I've learned to tell it with the peaks and the troughs and the, the humor that especially the dark humor, there's parts of the story that will associate with other people in any part of their life, whether, you know, I'm talking about the things I went through as a kid and showing Parents that might be having that same drama with their kids that there is a light at the end of the tunnel if they just shower their kids with love and let them know that they 're there and they 'll always be there always be there you can 't always control what they 're going to do or what they 're going to go through, but you can control the love that you give them simple things like that and and the, being able to make those big scary decisions to change the scenario of your life when you 're not happy there 's no reason to be stuck in a life or a job or a relationship that isn't fulfilling you. Sometimes you have to make that big, scary decision to step outside that, that situation to fulfill your own happiness and fulfill your own dreams. And so I've had a lot of people come up to me over the years after my speaking job and people that have broken down in my arms because they've lost kids or because they have been through something insane as well, like cancer or losing loved ones or losing limbs or anything like that. So it is an absolutely fulfilling journey for me to get on stage and share these stories with people.
0: Well, I think it's incredible. So with that journey, how did you find yourself in television? Well, like I
1: said, the, the attack was such big news that a lot of australian tv shows wanted to talk to me about it um so 60 minutes were first they were filming me from the time that i was leaving hospital to going into my home and overcoming stuff and then going to work and then they did another episode two years later and they wanted me to to introduce me to the shark that nearly killed me the bull shark and so we went to Fiji, and I learned to dive with bull sharks, and that was the first time that I actually hand-fed one as well. And so over the years, I just got comfortable in front of the camera, and I think that showed um, whenever there was a shark interaction in Australia, the media would come to me and ask me for some advice. And so out of you know the desire to not look like a dumbass on television, I had to learn about sharks. And I found that the more research I did into these animals, the more I realized how little we had to fear of them and how much they have to fear from us. Um, And so one year Discovery Channel came to me for just simply an interview. They were doing a bunch of stories about people that had survived shark attacks. And I guess they liked the way I was on camera and they flew me out to LA to be on the, the live talk show at the end of each night, Shark After Dark. And they liked that so much. The next year, they offered me a co-hosting job with uh, a guy called Andy Casagrande, who's one of the world's best shark divers and cinematographers. And he taught me so much. And I had a really great um, showrunner called Matt Tomachewski. And they were just so incredible to work with. And I saw my first great white and I did my first cage dive with great whites and I guess that Discovery Channel just liked what I did and they gave me another show the next year and then another show the next year and then Nat Geo came to me uh, and offered me my own TV show and my managers went to Discovery Channel just to let them know because they gave me my start and the boss of Discovery Channel at the time said if Paul works at Nat Geo, he'll never work on Discovery Channel again. And so I got stuck in this horrible tug of war where I knew I had to make a decision and I was going to really piss off one group of very powerful TV people. Um, But everyone I spoke to said stay with Discovery Channel. And so – I stayed with Discovery Channel. My managers sweetened the deal. They um, got me a, a two-year contract, a two-year visa to live in America because that's something, you know, in Australia and probably um, the UK as well. We grow up on American television. We grow up on American movies. And so I, you know, it was back to that kid before I joined the military. There's this huge big world out there. How do I be a part of it? And all of a sudden, I was getting the offer to be a part of this bigger world like America with more opportunities and more, um, more avenue for growth. And so I moved out to America. Um, and I had a bunch of speaking jobs in Australia as well over the next 18 months. And so for 18 months, I lived in Airbnbs. And this was, once again, a really, really lonely time because I, I didn't really know anyone in America. All my friends in Australia were working, so I had a car in Australia, a car in LA, and my whole life was shoved into those cars, and I was just bouncing back and forth every few weeks. Um, but after, say, 18 months, I just I couldn't do it anymore, so I stopped taking any more Australian speaking jobs. I got an apartment in, in LA, and it was almost ceremonial, taking my clothes out of my suitcase and hanging them in a real closet and um, yeah, I started to put down roots. So I flew my dog out from Australia that my mum had been looking after. And I, I really designated my mindset into making this a new home. And you know, I'm on my third, just starting my third two year contract with Discovery Channel. I get to make, I get to host three new Shark Week shows a year. And then I get to speak out here and I get to do other cool things like little random things pop up. And you know, I did an acting role in Australia for a mini miniseries. Uh, so I, I, I love it's like being a clearance diver again. I never know what's going to happen day to day. It, it, it's scary because you don't know if you're going to have a job in time. But it's also really exciting. And I kind of thrive
0: on that uncertainty. What did you have that moment? Or oh, let me ask you, when, when was that moment? Because I'm sure you did. When you realized that you were living the life that as a young boy watching David Attenborough, you dreamed of doing one day, or no, didn't they probably didn't even dream of doing? You, you admired him doing, and now you're doing that very role yourself.
1: Um, I got an inkling of it when I was working on the first Shark Week documentary, Great White Matrix. But then when I moved out to the US, and aside from speaking that was my main job getting paid to fly around the world and go diving with sharks and sharing these amazing animals with the world and doing things that i would literally pay to do and as would most people um yeah the 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 first year of living out here on my contract really was like that I, I do all the cool Amer- LA things, go up to Runyon Canyon and a whitewater rafted down the American River and go hiking through Yosemite National Park, which I actually thought was Yosemite because it's spelt the same as Vegemite. And Marmite. And, and everyone <laughs> was laughing at me. But, and I, train, I get to train at Gold's at Venice Beach. And, you know, I go, you know, the gym's been closed down for, for 10 months, but I turn up to the gym every morning and Arnold Schwarzenegger says hello to me. And I have I'm, I met Van Dam, and I have that gym has turned into my little family out here, and it's it's really quite a great place to be and work. And looking back at Australia, it's it's home, and I love it, and I miss the beaches so much, but it, it feels so small now. Like here, the opportunity is endless.
0: Yeah. Well, with David Ambra, my, my sister actually has edited for BBC and those kind of, you know, wildlife shows for years now. Um, and he just did that documentary about, you know, his experience through his life, starting off as, as a naturist in the fifties and, and what he's seen with his own eyes. So with, you know, your experience, especially in the oceans, what are some of the things that we need to be cognizant and, and wary of as far as the environment in the oceans?
1: Well, it's, I always, I always think people should think globally, act locally, as the saying goes. Um, so think about your own little pocket. Think about the trash that is in your area or on the beaches or that are people throwing on the ground. I have some some good friends that started a group called Recycle for Veterans. And they get veterans together every week or every week, every second weekend, and they go out and they clean a beach around uh, California. And so, little things like that, the the detrimental things we're doing to our planet and our ocean can simply be uh, fixed by humans not being such assholes and throwing our trash around and polluting the the waterways. it's it's really not that hard. There's so many groups out there that are working to improve our environment that they're looking for people to help them. And it can be anything from, you know, in Australia, we had the big shark culls and we went out hundreds of people and we we did a big protest on the beach to try and stop the shark culls. And the government came and and they started to implement small changes instead of, Catching sharks on a drum line and killing them. They started catching them on smart drum lines, which would uh, signal to the the workers, they'd go out in the boat, they'd take the shark off the hook, they'd transport it out to sea and then they will let it go instead. So things like that, like there, there are so many little things that we can do, um, you know, small things consistently are what are going to make the difference.
0: Yeah. What about your observation of the last year? Because... One of the most beautiful things that came out of 2020 was those first few weeks where everyone had just stopped. All the vehicles stopped pretty much, you know, everyone was, it was in their homes. And we saw, you know, the skyline in L.A. I lived in Burbank for a few years, so I know, you know, how freaking awfully smoggy that place is normally, you know, and the air was clearing up. The Venice canals were clearing up. And it seemed like Mother Nature gave us this massive, like, you know, billboard, like, hey, you know, if you keep doing this, I can fix myself. And then... Through my eyes, we, the pendulum swung all the way the other way. We all got back in our cars, but now we wear gloves and masks, and those are thrown everywhere. Every every piece of food is wrapped in plastic or stuck in a plastic bag, and I feel like that message was completely disregarded. So through through your eyes, you know what what messages do you think we saw, and you know how do we actually persuade people to actually learn from some of those incredible moments that we saw early 2020?
1: Yeah, we did see some amazing stuff. You know, China saw the sky for the first time in, <laughs> in three decades um, but at the same time we destroyed countries we destroyed economies um, people lost their businesses lost their homes uh, suicide went up in Australia I think 200 percent and so somehow if we could find a middle ground there that would be perfect but you know people have to make a living and that means we have to drive cars and go to work and there has to be industry. And so I I don't think it's, I wish it was as simple as us just going back to the early COVID days, but also they were horrible days for a lot of people. Um, And so if we could find a middle ground, if we can just find a way to do it better, um, I, I totally stay out of politics out here in America because people are extremely passionate and I'm going to use that term as a very nice way to say it uh, about politics out here. Um, And, you know, Trump was not good for the environment. Um, And hopefully this next uh, group Biden and whatever, you know, it sounds like they've already implemented some great changes environmentally. uh, And hopefully that will continue because, you know, as, as, much as we can do the little things, it, it really is up to our elected officials to implement the legislation and the laws to save this planet that we are constantly destroying. Um, and It wasn't all roses either. In the middle of COVID, there was a Japanese fishing fleet over 300 boats some of these boats as big as football fields and they can stay out in the ocean for years they're called super trawlers and they just fill their boats full of fish and sharks and whales and rays and then other boats will come out collect all of that change out the crew refuel and then go back to china and now that boat's got a whole new crew and an empty hull to fill again and so This massive 300 fleet of fishing trawlers were just outside the exclusion zone of the Galapagos Islands, you know, a beautiful, untouched area full of life. And they sat in this border between the international waters of, um, I think it was Ecuador and the Galapagos, and they just raped everything that went through there and destroyed that whole area. And I have a buddy that went out there to film some stuff, and he said it was just ridiculous. He said he went diving and there was barely anything there and everything was acting skittish and scared. Um, And so there is a lot that needs to change if we're going to save this planet we're
0: living on. Yeah. No, and that's the thing. I agree that I think the middle ground is exactly where we should be. And I want to get just very quickly to your, you know, your plant-based diet before we transition to some closing questions. But that's, you know, that's a takeaway for me. It's not about no one drives cars, but maybe we think about more pedestrianized areas and, and you know, rail systems and buses and things that reduce, you know, the carbon footprint. And we look at the way we farm. You know, the reason why COVID was so bad is because we've got so many sick people in this country that they were dying from a virus they should have been you know, mildly affected by. So the way yeah, we yeah. spray Most our food.
1: To look at um, what they're putting into their face instead of on their face.
0: Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, and that's it. So the middle ground is the conversation of both. You know, I get the isolation, I really do. But that conversation about health and food and agriculture and air pollution has to be there side by side with masks, hand sanitizers and stay, yeah. you know, six foot. <laughs> yeah. So well, you,
1: in America, you know what it's like. It's, you go, you drive past In and Out Burger, and there's a line of cars around the block, and there's these morbidly obese people shoving burgers in their face while wearing a mask under their chin. And like you just, you're not, you're not stopping anything. People need to start really taking stock of their own actions and their own health and their own well-being instead of relying on the government to come out with a vaccine. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not taking away anything from the horrific death toll that COVID has implemented around the world and in America. But at the moment, I think we're at 410,000 deaths from COVID, which is horrendous. But annually, there's 655,000 deaths from coronary heart disease. So why, why are the tobacco shops open? Why are they essential businesses throughout all of COVID? How are these massive companies putting all this horrible artificial sweetener into kids cereal to start the diabetes and start the coronary coronary heart disease process when they're toddlers you know there needs to be better laws against these companies putting shit into our foods to help everyone understand that your health is your wealth
0: absolutely i couldn't agree more well just very quickly then so your plant based diet i actually switched to a plant based diet it was a few years ago now and yeah, you know, was amazed. I had a dwindling of um, energy and, and strength towards the end, but that could have just been, you know, obviously you know, my my physiology. The fact I was a full time firefighter, better getting any sleep. Um, and it, but I have to attain that I had blood work done. My blood work was as good as it's ever been. I felt great. My poo looked awesome. I saved a lot <laughs> of money on toilet paper. <laughs> so when did you, you know, decide to make that change? And I want to say thanks to James Wilkes, by the way, speaking of which the, the MMA fighter that made the game changes, he was the one that connected us in the first place. So how did you come across that, that way of eating? And then what was your personal experience?
1: Um, well, it all started when I went to Africa actually. Um, Xbox uh, had given me uh, money to create a pilot for a, a series that we'd come up with called Fearless, where I was going to embed with all of these incredible groups of humans around the world that are risking their lives to make the world a better place. So we shot the pilot in Africa with Damien Mander, who was on the Game Changers. And he was actually an Australian clearance diver as well. So we knew each other. And I got to go out and spend a couple of weeks in Zimbabwe embedded with his anti-poaching unit um, to learn how they do it. And, you know, just really spend some in-depth time with these rangers that risk their lives to save what they call their family. And one night uh, in, the, in the beginning, the cook was making food for everyone. And I saw Damien was eating from a separate pot. And I was like, ah, oh, this guy is saving the good meat for himself. And I went over there all cocky going, hey, what's, what's up with that pot, bro? And he goes, oh, well, I don't eat meat. The rangers eat meat. And I'm like, what? Because Damien's like six foot three or four, built like a brick shit house. I'm like, what do you mean you don't eat meat? And he said, well, I'm vegan. And I said, what's that? And he's like, well, you know, I don't consume any animal products. I was like, why? And he said, well, I was going out into the wilderness to save these animals. And then I was coming home and I was eating the animals and I felt like a hypocrite. And that struck a chord with me because I dislike hypocrites immensely. The worst leaders that I've ever had have always been massive hypocrites, always do as I say, not as I do. And I always strive to be the do as I do sort of person. And I was talking about saving the oceans and saving the sharks, but I was eating the animals that are a detriment to our environment at the same time. And so it struck a chord with me and I went home and I thought, you know what, I'm going to go vegan. And I lasted two days. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know what to eat. Um, and so I gave it away, but it just, it kept popping up in my world through people like John Joseph, through a very good friend of mine in Norrington. Um, a lot of other people that I respected had come out as plant-based. I'm like, all right, I'm a firm believer that when the universe is talking to you, you need to listen because there's a very good reason for it. And so I listened and I, I did it. incrementally this time around I cut out you know I stopped eating kangaroo then I stopped eating beef then I stopped eating you know I didn't eat dairy anyway because I'm lactose intolerant so that was easy but over a series of months I cut everything out and when I would remove one thing I'd add more in because mostly I ate a lot of kangaroo a lot of chicken breasts some broccoli and sweet potatoes and that was about it and so every time I cut something out I'd find a whole bunch of other foods and I'd add them in And so I actually became a better cook, I became healthier because I was getting way more macro and micronutrients, I was enjoying my food more, Um, and since that day, I haven't had a serious injury. Now, I I didn't have the the better sleep or the better energy, I maintained fairly well, Um, but I haven't had a serious injury since that day, and I used to get a lot from all the days in the army and the navy, I had horrible tendonitis in my elbows. My shoulder always blew out. My lower back was always blowing out. And even if I do get something, it, it seems to heal up very quickly. And I guess that's down to the fact
0: that I'm not eating these inflammatory foods. Yeah, well, I think that was the thing I talked with James about. Um, you know, he—I don't know if you heard—he had um, some conversations with Joe Rogan, and it was Chris Cresser. Um, and they were basically tourists, tourists, uh, film apart. And I love, I think Joe Rogan's amazing, but this particular guest, this this conversation, it was, there, there wasn't any positive to it. It was like, this is why this is shit. And so when we talked, I'm like, well, here's my thing. I'm sold on, on plant-based. I, you know, I I kind of view my diet at the moment as plant-based with a sprinkling of meat. So sometimes I eat meat, but there's definitely a lot of plant-based. I don't eat dairy. Again, it, it upset my stomach for years and years and almost overnight when I removed dairy. I felt better after, you know, 40 years. But, you know, as you mentioned, I think the big thing that people miss is when you focus on plant-based, and it can be some of the other diet um, philosophies too, what you end up doing is removing the shit, all the processed foods, and adding in a more a diverse spectrum of plants. So even if there is some clean meat with it, you've still, imp- you know, leveled up multiple times on, on the what you are eating before so you know to me if you do no meat at all no dairy beautiful you know if that doesn't quite work for you and you put a little bit of meat in also beautiful so i the the you know the all or nothing arguments i think turn people off whereas if you meet in the middle like you said you start chipping away you might end up with 10 percent meat but you're still 90 yeah. percent better than where you were before yeah, and you and you're doing uh, creating an amazing impact
1: in the environment as well. You know, there's I, I just find, like you said, if something is not necessary, but it's creating harm, then why partake in it? Why sponsor the suffering of these animals around the world that are living in factory farms? They're being given hormones. They're being given antibiotics to the point where now we have super bugs that these antibiotics can't stop. And we're we're one super bug away from getting wiped out because none of our antibiotics are going to work anymore. Um, you know, and, and then the suffering, these animals growing up in pens, being tortured, their babies ripped away from them, um, you know, female cows being raped with fists in their asses to in, and then being inseminated at the same time. Like, that's, that's bestiality. If, any, if you walk down the street and some guy had his fist up a cow's ass, you'd call the police. But when you do it in the dairy industry, it's protected and you can't even speak out against it because of animal agriculture laws. So, you know, Oprah got smashed. All she said on her show was that she's going to um, cut down her meat intake and the animal agriculture industry went after her with, in, with million dollar lawsuits and tried to destroy her. And that's the power of these industries that, uh, that are trying to protect their, their billion dollar industry. Um, and it's all through suffering and torture of these just innocent beings, really. So if you don't need to sponsor that, then why would you?
0: Yeah. When it goes back to the you know, slavery thing we talked about earlier, you know, a handful of assholes again want to control all the food. All the farms, all the seeds, all the, you know, whatever it is. So even if, again, let's say you, you you know, you want a little meat. Well, if you're supporting local holistically run farms where the animals are out doing their thing and, you know, that particular farm, um, you know, is one that processes animals, but it's all done in a humane way that's still so much better than these factory farms or these men and women wearing level 2 or level B hazmat suits spraying the food that your kids are going to eat in about two months' time.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't abide to the fact that there's any uh, humane way to kill something that doesn't want to be killed. So the, the, the humane thing is, is to off the table. That doesn't even exist. Um, you know, if, if I shot you in the head with a bolt gun, would you say that's humane? I wouldn't have a chance, I'd be dead. Because <laughs> you don't want to die. <laughs> These animals don't want to die yeah. either, like, but they don't get given a choice. And look, I'm I'm all for um, less is better than nothing. Um, so, you know, if, if you feel the need that you've got to do that, then all, by all means, um, you know, do it incrementally like I did or, or whatever you need to make yourself feel like you're healthy and strong and all that sort of stuff. But you know, I, myself and so many of my friends have proven that it's not necessary. You know, I have jacked bodybuilder friends. I've got elite athletes that do Ironman, a suit, like just incredible people. Uh, Morgan Mitchell, the Australian Olympic runner. I just, it's been proven that you can do it. So, and there's 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 so many resources on the internet for you to get the information from in regards to getting all of your nutrients and people always seem to fall back on this oh yeah but you've got to supplement b12 well all of the the meat that you're eating is actually supplemented with b12 because the animals aren't getting it so they have to be fed the b12 so you're getting it secondhand from an animal anyway so that's it's not a great argument there Um, And if you're eating a good variety of foods, you're going to get all of the the nutrients that you need anyway. And obviously not everyone's the same. Some people have had horrific uh, experiences on the plant-based diet and whether that's because of their genetic makeup or whatever i don't know i'm i'm no food scientist all i can say is it's it works for me that makes me feel good in my soul that nothing is directly dying for for me to survive and so uh, if i can do it then i'm just going to continue that way
0: yeah well i think and that's exactly it so you know i think definitely not allowing the propaganda to push you away from that philosophy and then you know try it and I, like i said i can attest just try, <laughs> try, try it for two weeks and see how your guts feel. See how your guts act. And I think that's, that's huge. And, you know, if, if you, you know, are starting to find some detriment, then again, as you said, make sure your nutrient profile is where it needs to be. But. I think that it, nutrition is a very strange thing because ultimately it's down to the person. It's like religion. It doesn't affect anyone else as long as you're not being an asshole with it. So, yeah. you know, it doesn't matter what anyone else does. Just try it yourself. But I, I do hate that, that negative propaganda that's around plant based because I, like I said, I think it was one of the healthiest, you know, few months of my life. And it's something that I'm kind of pushing myself back towards.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very, I've got a lot of friends that won't even refer to themselves as vegans because <laughs> they're, they're, they're sick of these militant vegans forcing it down people's throats. Um, my friend Simon Hill, actually, who runs a podcast called Plant Proof, uh, and he's on Instagram as well. He's a, a really intelligent guy, has a lot of very uh, intellectual, plant based people on his podcast and always has a lot of science to back what he states and a lot of great articles on his Instagram. So if anyone's looking into it and worried about nutrient profiles, I would definitely jump on to Simon's Plant Proof Podcast and jump on his Instagram. Uh, You'll learn a lot there. Um, There's also, um, uh, what's it called, nutritionfacts.com. So there's a podcast, there's a website, there's, you know, it talks about the, the dirty dozen, the um, fruits and vegetables that have the most pesticides on them, so which ones you should get organic for. You know, There is just a wealth of knowledge on the, on the internet for anyone that's curious about it, that wants to give it a go. Look, just if you're curious about it, just, just do it for a month. Just try it out. See how you go. But make sure you do it right or do it like I did and do it incrementally so that you're not all or nothing and it freaks you out and you, your body feels shit because, you know, you've been piling all of this garbage into your system for so many years. Sometimes it's going to take a little while for your body to uh, process all of the goodness you're going to get from the fruit and veggies and grains and nuts.
0: Absolutely. I had Dr. Gregor on the show, actually, that that does the nutrition.org and then um, uh, Rip Esselstein, who's a firefighter and son of, uh, you know, a famous uh, plant, based scientists and you know i think another area that people don't realize in my opinion is the healing power the disease reversal power of a plant-based diet as well
1: yeah absolutely yeah um yeah rips are rips a great sort uh resource of information as well i've I've spoken at his events and um forks over knives is a a really great resource as well Um, there's just there's so many now and there's you know you talked about you know, you're getting all these processed foods out of your system, but obviously, there's plenty of pre- uh, processed plant-based foods as well. So, it's it's not like you're going to go without. I love the Beyond Meat burgers. I don't have them all the time, but they are pretty dang tasty. <laughs> <laughs> they are. We use them all the time. It has vegan ice cream, and you, know, you really don't have to go without, but if you can... Make sure you're eating predominantly plant-based, then I really do think people will notice a, a positive difference in their health and well-being.
0: Absolutely. Well, Paul, I want to tr- transition to some closing questions so I can let you go because I know we've gone over time. Um, the first one I love to ask is there – actually, I'm sorry, before I, before I ask you this question. So, let's talk about your books. Um, I was going to ask you about another book. Um, so, you have uh, No Time for Fear and then last year you released Tough AF. I'm assuming that's as fuck um so you're about to to release another one so tell me about that and then when it's coming out
1: uh yeah so the the no time for fear was released in australia under penguin and but that that came out in 2012 so obviously i have these eight years of having worked with discovery channel all the years after leaving the military that wasn't updated and and penguin didn't want to to do a a follow-up and so uh, and America, where I live now, and a lot of my, my followers are from, they couldn't get the book out here. And so I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just redo it. I rewrote it with a, a very good friend of mine, Geraint Jones, who runs the um, Veteran State of Mind podcast. He's got a bunch of his own books. If you love historical fiction like The Romans Fighting the Gauls, he's got um, three, nearly four books on that, really good reads. So he helped me rewrite the whole story and then add all of the exciting stuff from Shark Week because you know, 90% of the stuff that happens on these shoots don't even make it into the show. There's so much behind the scenes stuff that we're doing, catching crocodiles, people nearly dying, what it was really like to parachute into the ocean for 44 hours with no food or water surrounded by sharks. The first time I dove with a four great white sharks at 110 feet with no cage, like all of these cool stories. So I, I just felt that uh, it would be best to rewrite it and re-release it. So we've done that. It's going through final editing now, and it should be out around my birthday at the end of March. Beautiful. Is it the same title? No time for fear? No, this one's gonna be called Uncaged. Uncaged. Beautiful. All right. The, um the Tough AF book was just was um an e book I released last year, and that was to give people an idea of what it's like to go through Uh, physical training, getting into the army, during the army, getting into the clearance divers through the selection process, what PT we did to keep ourselves fit. So it's a really good resource for anyone that's thinking of joining the military, or maybe is already in the military and wants to up their game, or for anyone that just wants to give it a go. And I, I started it out. So it's very simple. It's easy for anyone at any fitness level to do, and then ramped it right up to clearance diver training.
0: Beautiful. Well, thank you. So the first question I have for you, is there a, per, a book someone else has written that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed or something completely different.
1: Um, yeah, there's, oh man, there's, there's so many. Um, my, my good friend, John Joseph, uh, lead singer of the punk rock band, the Crow Mags. He's 50, 55, I think still doing Iron Man's fully plant-based. He's got a series of books. Um, the first one's called, uh, Definition of a Cro-Mag. His second one is Meat is for Pussies. Um, (laughs) uh, The the third one is uh, The PMA Effect, The Positive Mental Attitude. And he's got another one coming out soon, but I don't know the title. But the best thing I love about reading John's book is he's a loud, unapologetic, gruff speaking New Yorkan. And so if if you can jump on his Instagram and see his videos and listen to his voice, then you can read the books in his voice. And it just makes it way more entertaining. And they're just like the the gloves are off in everything that he writes. So I love his brutal honesty in those. Um, but like I said, Garant Jones, his his historical fiction books about the Roman Empire fighting the Gauls. Uh, Really, really interesting, totally brutal. He also has his own book about – because he's a veteran, a UK veteran um, from Wales. He served in Iraq. He served in Afghanistan. Uh, He's got a book called – I think it's Brothers in Arms, but it's the most honest book I've ever read about being a soldier Uh, It's from – what you do when it's boring, which soldiers will know what I'm talking about, uh, on deployment, to losing mates, to being in gun battles, to the hypocrisy of the military, uh, and then what comes after when you get separated with the depression, with the drugs, with the credit card debt, all that sort
0: of stuff. It's a really all-in-one packaged book. Beautiful. Sounds amazing. I'll have to get a copy of that myself. All right, well then, same question, but a movie and or documentary.
1: Oh, well, uh, man, my favorite movie of all time is True Romance, which is uh, one, I think, Quentin Tarantino's first movie. Um, pff, love that movie. It's so good. It's got so many superstars in it before there were superstars, um, uh, from Brad Pitt to uh, Christopher Walken to Michael Rappaport, uh, Christian Slater, Patricia Arquette. Amazing movie. Um, and what was the other one? Uh Documentary. Documentary that that David Attenborough one, um, I, I think it's a, a Life on Planet Earth. I think so, yeah,
0: called? yeah, yeah.
1: That that was an amazing documentary. The the footage of him as a young man being a naturalist and everything he saw from when he was young to what it is now. And the detriment we've had on the planet and how we need, really need to band together to take it back and, and regrow this beautiful planet, you know, our home.
0: We've only got one. So why destroy it? Absolutely. Well, he's someone I'd love to get as a guest one day. Obviously, he's a pretty you know, tough person to get on. Um, but my question is, is there anyone you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world?
1: Um, wow. Uh, I got so many mates that are really interesting, but, um, Garaint, definitely one of them. Um, he, he's, uh, he's like John, he's unapologetically honest. Uh, I've been on his podcast a couple of times. We have a, a really good time. Um, I, oh man, um, I did one very recently with, oh, I can't remember a name, but the podcast was called Brass and Unity and it was a... Uh, A U.S., she's Canadian, but she served, um, I think, in Iraq or Afghanistan, and uh, a lot of stuff happened to her. She got PTSD. There was a lot of breakdowns, but she's just a very good conversationalist and interviewer, and I had a really good time, and she brought a lot of stuff out of me that I I hadn't really spoken about in a long time, and so, um, yeah, check out the Brass and Unity podcast. I I can't remember for the life of me her name, but
0: um, she's a really lovely person and has been through a lot. Beautiful. Thank you. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows how to find you online, what do you do to decompress these days?
1: Uh, I go to the gym. Gym? Yep. I go to the gym. I hang out with my dog. Uh, There's nothing like the love from a dog. It's unconditional. Um, So yeah, going to the gym is my therapy. I, I get a lot of people that say, hey, I'm coming to LA. Let's work out sometime. And I'm like, nope, sorry. I don't. That's that's pole time. That's my therapy where I get angry and I get worked up. And I'm, it's just very simple. I get in my head. I listen to my music and that's pole time. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> no, no one get upset if I say, no, I'm not going to work out with you. That's uh, It's because it's uh, therapy for me.
0: <laughs> well, you mentioned before we started recording that you bought a lot of stuff for your apartment so you could work out even if Gold's Gym is shut down. Um, what's your favorite piece of a home gym equipment?
1: Well, I've I've got... A rower. I've got a treadmill. I've got adjustable dumbbells. I got weighted vests. But my favorite one that I just got is the upright rower. The um, they call it a ski erg. Um, I love it because it's simple. Like, I I live in a pretty small apartment, so I've got to fold down the treadmill. I've got to put on my running blade, or I've got to fold out the rower, and you know. But with the ski erg, all I do is put on one of my weightlifting arms with a special attachment, and I just pull the crap out of that thing and it works my abs it works my lats it works my triceps it works my shoulders and you know within two miles i feel all pumped up and jacked and alive so
0: i really like that beautiful all right well then if people want to find your books if they want to find out more about you online reach out to you on social media where are the best places
1: um amazon's got the tough as fuck ebook um it will also the new one uncaged will be on Amazon, but it won't be out until uh, the end of March. Um, anywhere on social media, whatever you like, um, is just my name, Paul Degelder. I, I'm mostly on Instagram because I feel like Facebook is people basically always airing their dirty laundry. Where <laughs> I feel like Instagram is kind of Instagram. If you accept it for what it is, is extremely motivating. People get wrapped up in the the thing that it's, oh, it's just people posing and showing their best photos of their life. but And there's nothing wrong with that. That can be inspiring for you. I get a lot of my my new workouts from there. I get inspired by fit people that you know might have some really good biceps that I want to get. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do their workout. And you can change it. It's always interesting. It's always uh, evolving into something else. So yeah, it, it, social media doesn't have to be a bad thing as much as people hate on it.
0: Yeah, no, I agree, and I have mine. You know, I I think of mine as a community. You know, people call to call it followers or whatever, but I think that's bullshit. It's a community of people. So if you groom it that way and you get rid of the turds, you end up with this very positive group of men and women, and you share positive posts, and they see them interacting. And yeah, I don't see what people talk about. So you're yeah, in control absolutely. of your audience, absolutely. And and people,
1: especially over the last year, everyone's going through some pretty tough times, and everyone goes through shit. So I, I find it rewarding just to put out some positive messages. I st- stay away from politics and religion, and I try to make my platform just like it's fun. It's funny. It's motivational. It's exciting. I put on some of the Shark Week crazy shit that I do, and you know, it's, it's just fun for me. I don't really get too wrapped
0: up around the axles about it absolutely well paul i just want to say thank you so much again i know it's you know evening time and you've had a busy day so i truly do appreciate you being so generous with your time and you know lending your story to us today my pleasure james